message. Usually that's posted by Wednesday or Thursday somewhere in there. So keep up on it. But I'm excited about this sermon series. I'm having a blast putting it all together. And uh, so uh, we're going to start it today with a message that I've entitled Ordinary People. How many of you are ordinary people? Ordinary people for extraordinary tasks is the title of today's message. And uh, I want you to go with me, not to the book of Nehemiah right now. We're going to get there in a little bit. Uh, but I want you to go with me initially to the book of Acts chapter number 9. You see, the Bible sometimes compares the, a, a building of the work of God with the building of, of an of a edifice or a structure. Uh, here in Acts chapter 9 in verse number 31, uh, Luke says these words. He said, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, speaking of the church, multiplied. The words build up, they're taken from a, a Greek word that we translate as the word edified. From that same Greek word, we also get another word that we don't use very often, but it's called edifice. This is an edifice or a building, a structure, in which we do church. Now, again, you know this already, but this is not the church. We are the church. And so when, in the course of this sermon series, when we're talking about building or even rebuilding the church... Uh, don't worry, we're not going into a building program. At least a physical building program. But we are in the business of building and rebuilding the church. Um, and that word edifice is defined as an organization or a structure. And Jesus was speaking along those same lines when he said, spoke the words of Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, again, the church is not an organization. An organization is something along the lines of Salvation Army or March of Dimes or any kind of business is an organization. The church is an organism. Now, the difference is an organism is alive. Uh, how many of you know we as the church need to be alive? <laughs> Both physically and spiritually. We need to have something to offer to the world that is living and is real. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's alive forevermore. Amen? And because we belong to him, we too shall live forever. Now, that's Bible. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. So, if we are alive forever with him, we need to start acting like we're alive. Amen? We, we, we need to stop being a... The, the dead church, so to speak, and start acting like we're excited about being the body of Christ. Excited about being saved. Excited about the opportunity that we have to live in heaven with Jesus forever. Now that's exciting to me. It's exciting to me that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. I'm excited about that. I'm not, I'm not anxious for it, necessarily. I, there's a part of me that's anxious for it, but I have a lot of work to do here yet. And a lot of that work involves building and rebuilding the church. Now, if the church is a living organism, it needs health, 
It needs growth. And God wants to build his church. He wants to bless his church. And he wants to grow his church. The Apostle Paul describes it for us, uh, by the means by which God is going to build and bless and grow the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, beginning with verse 9. Let me read it for you. For we, say we, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Excuse me. <clears throat> now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, speaking of the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here we go. The business of the church is people. The business of the church is people. If we build people, the church will automatically be built. I heard the story of a, of a cattle rancher who got saved and surrendered his life to become a preacher. And this ex-cattle rancher, now preacher, went to a, 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 a church conference. And the conference was all about how to build a crowd. Asked about it later, he said, you know, it was strange. In all my years as a cattle rancher, I've never had to go to a conference to learn how to get cows to come to a feeding trough. I always just figured that if you put out good feed, the cows would come. Now, I'm not calling you cows. Let's establish that right from the beginning. But what he's saying is true. Not just from this pulpit, but from each one of us. If we put out good feed, the people are going to come. If we put out the kind of food that draws people to Jesus, the church is going to be built. Amen? Are you with me? Now, with that story in mind, let me just say that my job is not to primarily build a church, but to put out good feed. Same as your job. So we shouldn't be about the task of building a church as much as we are about the task of building people, and you build a church, friends, one person at a time. One building block after another. One person's life saved by the power of God, and that adds to the church. The church in Acts, where we read from earlier, the church was added to daily such as should be saved. That's the way the early church began. But not too long after the church gained momentum, and then the church started multiplying daily. And the, church, uh, uh, the early church experienced tremendous growth. Why? Because they were building the church one person at a time. And that's still our task today, to build the church one church at a time. Now, now here's the problem, and I am still getting to Nehemiah. In every church, there are three kinds of people. One, there are the destructionists, those who tear down the work of God. There are also, two the obstructionists, those who get in the way of the work of God. And there are also the constructionists, those who assist in the building of the work of God. Now, can I just say to you, I'd rather die than be a part of those first two groups. I, I, I'd rather die than, than to destroy the work of God. I'd rather die than get in the way 
of the work of God. Um, so having said all of that, Nehemiah is the perfect example of the group that we call the constructionists in the church. Go with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter number 1. The book of Nehemiah is the story of a man leading God's people in rebuilding the walls of God's holy city, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by the enemy, and the rebuilding of the walls of that city actually is one of the most amazing feats in the entire history of the world. Uh, It's amazing in the sense of its engineering and construction because they built the walls of Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. 52 days. Now you'll become even more amazed. I mean, the, the the amazed look on your face when I say that is just overwhelming from up here. But you're going to become amazed as we go through this book to see what a feat that was to rebuild those walls in 52 days. When I say engineering, I'm joking. Because when we think of fortified cities, we would think of these great walls that amazingly had these huge stones put together and and, and built into a beautiful wall. Let me tell you something. The wall that Nehemiah built... In, rebuilt in Jerusalem was not a beautiful wall. But it served its purpose. And Nehemiah was an ordinary person, fitted for an extraordinary task. So, I want to do my best this morning to answer what I believe to be three very important questions about Nehemiah's rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And to do that, we're just going to go through five verses from chapter number one of the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Three questions. What did it mean then? What did it mean now? And what does it mean to me or us? What does it mean to us today? And I want us to consider these questions because I believe that we need to apply these same principles to our lives. So let me just start by saying laying the foundation for this series on building or rebuilding the church. One thing, I, I, you may not know this, it's not important, but... After I had graduated from, from college, there was a, a, an area of interest that really appealed to me. I thought, man, Brenda can vouch for this, I thought back in the early 90s that it would be cool to be a reporter on the scene in Baghdad during Desert Storm. I know you think I've lost my mind. But it was out of all of that that I made a decision, I'm going to go back to college, and I'm going to get a degree in journalism. And so that's what I did. I went back as a 28-year-old, and I began the process of getting my degree. And and so uh, one of the things that I learned, though, in my journalism study, I learned that the first paragraph of a story is very important. And that in that paragraph, you should answer the who, the what, the when, and the where. And that's what Nehemiah does for us here in these first couple of verses of this book. First of all, what is this story of Nehemiah about? Well, it's actually an autobiography. We could say that it's the memoirs 
of Nehemiah and his testimony of what God did in him, what God did through him in his own words. Now, having said that, I have a question for you. If I were to ask each of you here this morning to write down how God is using you to build, the work, build up the work of God, what would you write down? If God were using each of you to build up the work of God, what would you write down? What would you write down that would challenge and inspire others to be built up? Words of Nehemiah were something worth writing because God was working in Nehemiah's life. Secondly, who is Nehemiah? Well, verse 1 says he's the son of Hakaliah. Hope that helps. <laughs> More importantly, there are three men in this story who will play an important role in the rebuilding of Jerusalem after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The first one is Zerubbabel. Say Zerubbabel. I heard it. Zerubbabel is a prince who represented the political side of the story. Ezra, the priest, he represents the religious side of the story. And then there's this guy named Nehemiah, this extraordinary church member, Nehemiah wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a preacher, he wasn't a scribe, he wasn't a teacher, he was an ordinary lay person, what we would call today a lay person, just an ordinary person in the church. In fact, Nehemiah worked a secular job. And let me just say to you this morning, that you don't have to be a preacher to be used by God. You don't have to be. Our Lord has this way of taking extraordinary people and doing extraordinary things through them. With that in mind, some of you perhaps have heard the story of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was never ordained to preach. He was a shoe salesman who got saved and heard a preacher make the statement that the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is completely yielded to God. Upon hearing that statement, Moody said, by the grace of God, I'm going to be that man. He'd never been to school, and as a result, his preaching would literally butcher the English language. He was not skilled. He was not trained. <laughs> I heard, heard uh, a teacher of mine say once that D.L. Moody was so unpolished that he could say the word Mesopotamia in one syllable. <laughs> but anyway, God transformed D.L. Moody, this ordinary guy, into a mighty evangelist. Now, just another great story about D.L. Moody. Moody got a lot of hate mail when he became a preacher. And much of it was hate mail that was never signed by the person that who wrote it. It was anonymous. And one time in a meeting, D.L. Moody took the pulpit to preach. And he found a small note that had been folded and placed on the pulpit that he couldn't help but see before he started preaching. So slowly, he opened the note, and he found only one word inside the folded note. It said, fool. D.L. Moody was very quick-witted, though. He told the crowd, in all my years, I've received a lot of letters with no signatures, but this is the first time I've ever received a signature with no letter. <laughs> I thought that was great. Anyway, what I'm trying to get across to you is there is no limit to what God can do through you if you'll just let him do it. If he can do it for D.L. Moody, he can do it for any of us here. Now, I used to try as a pastor to get everyone on board with with things in the church in order for those things to succeed. I'm talking about church programs. Get everybody behind it. Get everybody involved. I stopped trying to do that, by the way. Because I've come to realize that God chooses to use the faithful few. You know, it'd be great to have the same crowd that we have for Sunday morning 
for example, come to our Sunday evening prayer time. But again, God has set apart those that he wants to be a part of that. Now let me just say our prayer time crowd on Sunday evening is growing, but God doesn't need people who come to pray simply because they have to. He wants them to come pray if they want to, right? Years ago, Jerry Falwell from Liberty University started what he called the, you've heard of it, the moral majority. Now that's a nice name and it's a nice thought. But the fact is that if you are moral in America today, you're part of a minority. Um, If you think about it, God has amazing ways of using people who are the minority. I mean, just quickly go through Scripture. It was the minority that believed God and got into the ark with Noah. It was the minority of the spies who saw the promised land as being God's gift to Israel and the Canaanites as being defeatable. It was the minority who believed that Jesus really was the Son of God. And it was the minority who followed him even after he had proven who he was by rising from the dead. It's always been the minority who gets serious when it comes to serving God. And it's still true today but it, that it's the minority who are truly faithful to church and the minority who believe in things like creation instead of evolution. It's the minority who believes in purity before marriage because after all, everyone's doing it, right? But I'm proud to report that just as it's always been with God, it still is today. We may be the minority but we're right. We're right with our values. We're right with our morals for living for Jesus and doing what Jesus has asked us to do. Nehemiah did what he did as a minority. And we're going to find in this series that what Nehemiah did, he did in the face of criticism, in the face of opposition, and many naysayers who said, it can never be done. But one person, listen to this, one person walking in the will of God, plus God, is a majority. Even if that one person's you. One person walking in the will of God, plus God and his power and his ability, makes it a majority. Okay? Now, I want you to hold on to that statement throughout this entire series. So what is Nehemiah? Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is a testimony. Here's this loyal layman. Uh, It it took place, the scripture says, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. Well, let me explain that to you. In the Jewish calendar, that would respond to our months of November and December. Uh, the, The 20th year means that it was in the 20th year of a king in the reign of a king whose name was, are you ready for this? Artaxerxes. Please, parents, don't name any of your newborn children Artaxerxes. But that's when it takes place. So that would make it about 445 years before Christ. 445 years before Christ even comes on the scene. It takes place in the midst of Extremely difficult times for God's people. Great affliction and struggle was their norm. It wasn't their glory days for sure, for persecution of Israel's people at that time was at its very highest. And I tell you that because we should never think that we cannot accomplish great things in the midst of difficult days. God's will being accomplished is not dependent upon circumstances being favorable. Did you catch that? God's will being accomplished is not dependent upon your circumstances being favorable. It's only dependent upon the power of Almighty God. How many of you believe God's powerful? How many of you think that God can do something that you can't even imagine that God could do through you? A few hands went down through that. But it's true. In fact, it's so true that the darker our world becomes, 
the brighter our light can shine. The more difficult the time, the more impactful our testimony can be. And that's what this book is. Nehemiah is giving us a testimony of what God did through him. He was ordinary. No special giftings. Some churches and their leadership in today's world are saying that you can't build a church in these days by preaching doctrine or having standards. You know why they do that? Because if they preach the truth and they preach sin, preach against sin, they'll lose people. And when they lose people, they lose finances. And when they lose finances, they lose ministers. So some churches are caving in and saying, okay, we're not going to preach doctrine. We're not going to preach against, uh, we're not going to speak about godly values any longer. We're not going to have standards because our people come to be entertained and pumped up and they want to hear feel-good sermons. Well, guess what? Take a look around. We're growing, friends. We're growing here at Trinity Faith. Sunday mornings, we're seeing new faces. We're seeing new families. And not just once, we're seeing them week after week after week. And don't think for one second that those who are coming are coming because of my good looks and sense of humor. Anyone who's been here any time at all already knows that I tell the same old jokes. I just recycle them one after another. Okay, But what we are doing is we are doing our dead level best to preach the word. And I believe that there is still a market out there for people who want to hear the unadulterated, uncompromised word of God. I believe that to the core of my being. And that may be the minority thing to do. But we're growing, and God's smiling. If you read the book of Acts, where we started today, and you read about the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, you will see that the greatest revivals happened in the midst of the most wicked cities that existed. Almost without exception, cities that were steeped in idolatry and immorality is where the greatest revivals took place. Paul shined the light of the gospel and it pierced the darkness with a flourishing flood of light from heaven. Do you believe that God's still able to do that? I believe that. And we are living in an increasingly darkening world. So that means to me that we are primed for a great revival. Amen? Because you in the will of God, we in the will of God, plus God, are a majority. Amen? Now, in Nehemiah, it was the most difficult of days. But just like today in America and in liberal Kansas more specifically, I believe that God wants to show himself strong and true. When did it happen? I said, in, in dark days. Just, but it was, for Nehemiah, it was just an ordinary day in his life. Verse 2 makes it sound kind of nonchalant, but, but it was just another ordinary day when, when Nehemiah and some of his Jewish buddies get together and they're making small talk and the, the subject of the plight of God's people comes up. And in the course of the conversation, one thing leads to another and very quickly, Nehemiah finds himself thrust into ministry leading what was to be a building crew. That's really what it boiled down to. He was going to lead a building crew. God had this divine appointment arranged for Nehemiah on this day, an appointment that would change his life and would accomplish the will of God. Another ordinary day for Moses took place hundreds of years sooner or later. Moses was out there on the backside of the desert 
herding sheep. When all of a sudden God began speaking to him out of a burning bush. God's message to Moses on that day led him away from the backside of the desert to the front line of where things were happening with God's people. And you talk about God doing some amazing things. God's people were in the midst of slavery. They were in the midst of hardship at the hands of the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptians. But under Moses' leadership, and let me tell you what, Moses, Moses didn't have a whole lot of leadership qualities either. He said, God, I, I, I can't speak publicly. I can't do this. I can't do that. They won't accept me. They won't listen to me. And God said, and I'm paraphrasing the story, Moses, I am. I am will do the work through you if you'll just yield yourself for me to work through. It was just an ordinary day when a shepherd boy named David was called away from his flocks out on, in the desert to take supplies to his brothers on the front line of battle. And before that day ended, David had delivered Israel from the taunting of an ugly Philistine giant named Goliath. And it began the journey for David to become the greatest king in the entire history of the nation of Israel. It was just an ordinary day for Peter, James, and John out fishing and mending their nets when this guy named Jesus walks by and says, Guys, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And those three guys were a primary focus in the building of the early church. Ordinary people suited for extraordinary tasks. You see, God takes ordinary people on ordinary days to do extraordinary things. Maybe he's speaking to your heart about something right now. I don't know, but I can tell you this. It was an ordinary Thursday evening, July 15th, 1965, when I first understood that just because I had grown up in church, I was still a sinner in need of a Savior. And as a nine-year-old boy, I responded to an invitation at children's camp at Wheat State Campground in Wichita, Kansas. And I asked Jesus to forgive my sins and become my Savior. And I got saved on that night. I got saved on that night, and my life has been very different than what it could have been. And I can tell you this, it's all been for the better. It was an ordinary invitation four years later following what I would consider to be a very ordinary message from a very ordinary evangelist that caused me once again to step out in the aisle and go forward in response to the altar call. And when I got to that altar... God placed a calling upon my heart to go into ministry. 1969, I'll never forget that moment in everything that's followed. Now, I know all of that may sound strange to you unless you've experienced something like it. But I want to tell you this. Large doors can swing on small hinges. You say, what in the world does that mean? That's one of the strangest things I've ever heard. Where'd you come up with that one? Well, I don't know where I came up with it, but that's what I wrote down when I was doing, preparing this message. Large doors swing on small hinges. What it means is this. An ordinary moment pivoted my life in a direction that I would have never imagined. Now, that's why today could be a pivotal moment for somebody here in this room. Extraordinary things may happen as a result of a very ordinary message on a very ordinary Sunday morning. You see, 
it took God literally shaking me out of what was a comfort zone for me. Shaking me out of my comfort zone on that phone call that I got on June 1st, 1990 from the American Baptist Church in Lakin, Kansas. Their head deacon called and he said, Terry, and he knew me because me and Dwayne Skipper had gone over there and sang on several different occasions at that church. He said, Terry, this is so-and-so. I'm from the church in Lakin. And we want you to come and be our interim pastor. I almost laughed into the phone, except I knew he was very serious. And he kept, I, I, mean, I mean, I told him, that's not what I do. Uh, you know, I'll come sing for you, I'll fill in for a service, but I, that's not what I do. I don't preach, I'm not a pastor. He said, well, you pray about it. Well, I prayed about it, and I came up with my answer, no. But he was persistent. He kept calling. And so finally I said, okay, I'll come this Sunday, and I'll fill in this Sunday. And so I, I, ner- I can't even imagine to you, tell you the, the panic that came over me. I stayed up at night and I searched Scripture and I came up with a sermon that if I took my time preaching it, might last three minutes. And I know that's shocking to some of you here now. But Brenda and I and the girls went to that church on Sunday morning. And I'm sitting in the congregation and I'm praying, Jesus somehow let the Spirit fall in this Baptist church to where I can't even preach. Or, or, or second best, God, let the song leader lead every verse of every song and sing it a couple of times. I had nothing. And finally, the song leader gets up and he says, well, I'd like to introduce our speaker for today, Terry Engler. And folks, you've heard me, some of you have heard me tell, tell it before. They had this big old wooden pulpit like we used to have. And I'm glad it wasn't one of these because the congregation would have seen my knees going like this. My knees were literally shaking. I kid you not. I was terrified. And I remember the moment. I took my time walking to the pulpit. And I placed my hands on either side of that pulpit. And at that very moment, the Spirit of God said, This is the moment that I've prepared you for all these years. I became the interim pastor of that church. Served in that capacity for nine months. Told them they wanted me to become their pastor, and I said, there's a problem. I'm not a Baptist preacher. Uh, I believe in the fullness of the Spirit of God. And I preached that way for nine months. Don't know if it sunk into them or not, but that's the way I preach. But anyway, I told them, I'm, a, I'm not a Baptist preacher. You need to find a Baptist pastor. They did. And I thought, there, my responsibility is over. And then wouldn't you know, the church that was formed as a result of a split of my home church, the church that I said, I will never set foot in that church, called me and they said, we need an interim pastor. And we know that you've been filling in as an interim pastor, so would you come and be our interim pastor? God wouldn't let me out of it. So I went and served as their interim pastor for nine months. And then God dropped an opportunity on my lap to become a full-time pastor. What I'm telling you is from June 1st, 1990 to this day, unless I've been sick or unless I've been between churches or if I've been on vacation, 
I've been preaching from a pulpit every Sunday. Ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. That's what it's about, friends. Nehemiah was an ordinary person. You see, God's message to my heart was this. It was time for me to respond to that call that I shared with you about that took place at the campground when I was 13 years old. Back in 1969, he called me into ministry. Why? Because the fields were white under har- unto harvest, and he needed me to become a laborer to bring in a harvest that he had prepared. <laughs> well, I got to move on. Where did the story take place? Susha, or <laughs> The capital, that doesn't mean anything to you. It's the palace of a king Artaxerxes. Now, I'm hurrying to a close, but it begs a question. What was Nehemiah, this Jewish person, doing in a Babylonian king's palace? Well, 150 years before, the Babylonians had conquered the nation of Israel. They had destroyed Jerusalem, and they led many of the Jews into Babylonian captivity as prisoners. Why did God allow that to happen? Why did God allow his people to be taken into Babylonian captivity? I'll tell you why. Because the people of Israel had repeatedly ignored God's pleas for them to abstain from the worship of idols. They turned to idol worship over and over and over again. And God said, okay, you want idolatry? I'll give you idolatry. I'll take you to the fountainhead of idolatry in Babylon. Now, I'm telling you that because I believe there's a lesson in that for us as well. What is it? Be careful about what it is that you think you want so badly. Because God just might give it to you. God may give you what you're insisting on and give you a shove in that direction so that you can see that God's way really was best after all. And then you can learn your lesson and come back to him. That's what happened with the people of Israel. 100 years later, 50 years prior to Nehemiah's day, a group of Jews was permitted to to return uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but they never did it. They never repaired the walls. You say, okay, so who cares about the walls? Well, in those days, walls were everything for a city. They stood for protection. They stood for separation. They stood for glorification. It was curb appeal for the cities that they surrounded for God's glory and for anticipation because the prophets of God had foretold that the walls would be rebuilt in preparation for the coming Messiah. Those walls were important When Nehemiah heard about the walls being broken down, it broke his heart. And it became his passion. And it became his responsibility. Again, why was he in the king's palace in the capital city? Well, here's a job for you. Verse 11 tells us that Nehemiah served in the capacity of being a cupbearer for the king. Now, do you know what the role of cupbearer You know what the job description for a cupbearer is? Nehemiah's responsibility to drink the drink before the king drank it, to eat the food before the king tried it, in the event that it might be poison. That's the role of a cupbearer. Great position to have, lucrative government position, It'd be the equivalent of being in the secret service today, being a bodyguard to the president. But here was Nehemiah serving in this position, and history tells us that in order for a person to be given the job of cupbearer for a king, they had to be handsome, they had to be cultured, and they had to be knowledgeable. And Nehemiah, as a result of his position, he had daily access to the king, and he had, for a Jew anyway, great influence with the king. Because the king learned to trust him. The king was confident with Nehemiah. So it was a great position. He, he, Nehemiah had it made among the Jewish people. He lived like the king lived. He ate the way that the king ate. He dressed the way that the king dressed. 
living in the lap of luxury. So why in the world then would Nehemiah be concerned about the sins of his ancestors to the point that he would want to go a thousand miles away back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls? Why would he give up all of that to take on the leadership of a building crew? The sins of his ancestors, they weren't his fault. He's not the one responsible for Jerusalem being plundered and its people being led into captivity. That wasn't his problem. Well, let me just interject here this truth. Many people don't want to know what's going on because knowledge brings responsibility. Maybe I need to say that again. That didn't gather a whole lot of amens. Many people don't want to know what's going on because knowledge brings responsibility. Nehemiah's heart was broken by the news of Jerusalem's condition. He found out about it. And he volunteered to do something about it. He made it his responsibility. He left comfort. He left security. He traded it all for the rigors of a ruined city. He exchanged prestige for poverty, comfort for criticism, royalty for ridicule. He left a great job to do an impossible job. The lesson of this story and my challenge to you this morning is this. The kingdom of God and His church are built by people who are willing to sacrifice and leave their comfort zones. (laughs) This may seem to be a really odd way to end a Sunday morning message. And some of our younger people won't be impacted by this at all because it's the older generation like myself that knew this guy, but we grew up listening to a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson. Raise your hands if you know who Flip Wilson is. Okay? (laughs) This is so odd to end the message this way. But I'm going to go with it because it's what I felt like God wanted me to say. Flip Wilson used to say, when people would ask him about his religion and what religion he adhered to, he would say, I'm a Jehovah's bystander. You know why he would say that? He would go on to say, I I was invited to be a Jehovah's witness, but I didn't want to get that involved. (laughs) Our Jehovah God has a lot of bystanders. But I wonder who God is speaking to on this ordinary Sunday as a result of this ordinary message to avail themselves to do something extraordinary for God. Jacob, worship team, would you come please? I love this story. 52 days, they rebuilt the entire wall around the city of Jerusalem. They had opposition every step of the way. They were laughed at. They were ridiculed. But you see, God had put something in Nehemiah's heart. And when God put that something in Nehemiah's heart, Nehemiah, you may be the only one but you and me are a majority. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, we don't have any, any physical walls to rebuild. We don't have we don't have threats against what we're doing as a church to come up against us. We don't have any great project that we have in mind that will appeal to the masses. But God, 
even without all of those things, there is a task that you have put before us. And that is to build your kingdom of God here in this community. One person at a time. And I know, God, I used to be one of them that said, I don't have, I don't have the education. I don't have the training. I, I don't have the skill set to, to present your gospel and to, to touch anybody's life. Like I said, I used to be that way. However, God is saying to us this morning, if you'll just make yourself available to me, I will do something so extraordinary through you that the world will know that it had to be me doing it because they knew you were not up to it. All he needs is our availability. Say, Pastor, I'd love to do that. Well, you can. Because it's in Christ alone that we find the hope, we find the power, we find the motivation to become a vessel through whom Christ can work. Would you stand with me, please? You're here this morning, and some fabric, some statement that perhaps I made in the course of this message this morning got your attention. You don't know quite yet what, what it's for, but you know that it got your attention. And you just have to believe that God is wanting to say something profound to you today or in the weeks to come. I want you to just raise your hand. Everybody. Everybody. Keep them raised. Keep them raised. Now I want you, by that, by that uplifted hand, in your own way, to just say to Jesus, Jesus, I can't, but here I am. If there's anything good in me that you can use, here I am. I make myself available to you. Let's sing this song together. Jacob, would you lead us? My hope is found. He is alive, my strength, my song, his cornerstone. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease. My all in all, here in the power of Christ, I stand. Did you catch that? Here in the power of Christ, I stand. It's not about you. It's about him working through you, given to him to do with as he pleases.